Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, happy Friday. It's March 5th. How are you? We hope your week has been a good one. We're feeling a little peppier thanks to progress being made on the vaccination front. With any luck, we can maybe even get out of here this summer without worrying that we're unwittingly bringing along a potentially lethal virus. As is the usual these days, there's gobs of news to get through, so we're just going to jump into a few things before getting to our interview with this week's featured guest, Lindy Fishburn. Fishburn is a deep science VC who we've known for years and don't talk with enough, or we'd know much more than we do about a lot of things, as she is a font of knowledge. You're definitely going to learn a thing or two as well, so stick around. But first, let's take a look at some of the week's stories. <laughs> In SPAC news, which is maybe becoming a regular segment of this podcast, shares of Virgin Galactic, the suborbital space tourism venture founded by billionaire Richard Branson, fell today after the company's chairman, Chamath Palihapitiya, dumped his personal stake in the company. Why should you care? Well, you might know that Virgin Galactic basically kicked off this whole SPAC craze, meaning all these blank check companies that we're seeing being formed right now with the aim of taking public all kinds of companies, many of them without revenue or much revenue and with business models where the kinks are still being worked out. In fact, Virgin Galactic itself was the first space tourism company to list on the stock market. And while analysts have hailed the company for its potential, it hasn't really produced much yet. During its last quarterly report, for example, the company revealed that it likely will not begin full commercial operations before 2022, which is just one more delay in a long string of them. So what's going on here? Was this a pump and dump scheme? Certainly some people are not going to be satisfied with Paula Hapatia's explanation of why he sold off his entire personal investment worth around $200 million. He said it was for a large investment that he's making toward fighting climate change and that he's disclosing soon. But he doesn't seem to need $200 million more to do anything. He's probably got that much in his couch cushions at this point. As for what we think, Paula Hapatia helped take this company public a year and a half ago, and public shareholders have had plenty of time to get out of the stock if they wanted. No one is forcing anyone to buy into these more speculative bets. I do think it'll be interesting to see what happens from here and whether the move impacts the broader SPAC market, which has been very frothy and was already seeing signs of slowing down slightly this week. The White House announced today that Tim Wu, a Columbia University professor and erstwhile critic of big tech, is joining the National Economic Council as a special assistant to the president for technology and competition policy. Wu's position on fang companies is well known. As he wrote in his 2018 book, The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age, Extreme economic concentration yields gross inequality and material suffering, feeding the appetite for nationalistic and extremist leadership. Most visible in our daily lives is the great power of the tech platforms, especially Google, Facebook, and Amazon. In 2019, Wu teamed up with Facebook co-founder Chris Hughes to propose an antitrust case against Facebook, and he has said that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects social media companies from the speech of their users, should be revoked immediately. Wu's appointment is further confirmation that the Biden administration intends to take a serious look at the power of big tech in today's society. Taking on companies like Facebook and Google may be the one issue on which both Democrats and Republicans can agree. 
While progressive Democrats decry Fang's market power, conservative Republicans such as Ted Cruz have criticized Facebook and Google for liberal bias. Wu, who coined the term net neutrality when taking on telecoms that were trying to limit speeds for certain websites and applications, is a formidable adversary. As Carl Zabo, vice president and general counsel at tech trade group NetChoice, told Protocol, Silicon Valley shouldn't underestimate the importance of Wu's appointment. It should not be hand-waved away, he said. This could be dangerous. In separate news, audio continues having its moment, with news from Reuters yesterday that ByteDance, owner of the hugely popular social network TikTok, is coming up with its own version of Clubhouse, the audio-only social network that's still less than a year old, but that has dominated the headlines in 2021. It's smart. First, Clubhouse was banned in China last month. ByteDance is also plainly aware that if it doesn't capture ground here, someone else will. In fact, many Chinese firms have reportedly rolled out similar services already, including Xiaomi, which suspended the operations of a WeChat-like instant messaging app that it operates called MeTalk and said it plans to relaunch the service as an audio chat app for professionals. In the meantime, back here in the U.S., the fight over who's going to rule audio is picking up momentum. Earlier this week, Twitter opened its live audio chat room called Spaces for Android users. Spaces is similar in functionality to Clubhouse, but Clubhouse is an iOS app only right now, meaning it's not available to a lot of people who might sign up for the platform otherwise. Also, Clubhouse remains an invite-only platform. Even while it's giving users many more invites to dole out to others, Spaces is already completely open to the public. So-called influencers aren't waiting to see who wins the battle here. Instead, they're figuring out ways to protect their interests and grow their reach. The New York Times, for example, reported yesterday on one outgrowth of the audio boom called Audio Collective, an outfit formed by 40 creators that will work on event planning, brand consulting, and support and community for other creators working in the field. The through line here? It's that there's money to be made in this new audio wave, and a lot of smart people are right now figuring out just how to do that. Up next, our interview with Lindy Fishburne, co-founder and managing director of Breakout Ventures, a seed and early stage venture firm focused on a wide variety of science-focused startups. Fishburne launched the fund a few years ago after spending most of the previous six years heading up Breakout Labs, a San Francisco program that's underwritten by renowned investor Peter Thiel and which continues to offer startups funding with no strings attached. In fact, it was her work with that foundation that made it obvious to Fishburne that there is a big money opportunity at the intersection of biology and technology. We talked with her about some of her bets earlier this week in a conversation we think you'll enjoy. But first, a word from our sponsor. Looking for a great accountant this tax season? Well, it's time to bring your accountant search into the 21st century with Agaris. Skip the search engine and get personalized, curated recommendations from this new matchmaking platform, free of charge. Agaris gets you connected to a network of trusted accountants and handpicks three perfect professionals, collecting all the info you'll need to make a choice you can trust. Give Agaris a try at agaris.com. That's A-G-E-R-A-S dot com. And find your perfect match today. Lindy, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for making time for this today. Thank you for having me. 
We've talked on this podcast with lots of investors about COVID's impact on all kinds of things, the enterprise, on consumer startups and the retail landscape. And we haven't really talked with an investor like you who is at the forefront of investing in deep science companies. I'm guessing there is suddenly a lot of interest in the startups that you're funding. Are you getting calls from potential syndicate investors who you weren't hearing from previously? Yes, I think the COVID and the pandemic has brought the importance of investing in science into sharp relief. And I think for the first time, we're really seeing a whole set of what you would think of as traditional tech investors who read about the mRNA vaccine that Moderna coded in a weekend, that they're really starting to believe that we are able to engineer biology and it doesn't feel like a craft process anymore. And the more that it looks like a tech enabled science, the more you've got traditional tech investors seeing the value, being more comfortable with the technical risk, and certainly taking a look at this market as a whole new level of importance and where they see growth over the next 10 years. Lindy, before we get into some of the bets that you're making, I am just wondering, based on the conversations that you are having with people, what is your sense of where we are in things? I think we all want to think we're nearing the end of this pandemic. We're in Marin County. I think they're hoping to have something like 80% of people vaccinated by the end of May, which is great. But I am nervous when I see the governor of Texas Masking. Yeah, demasking everybody. What, what do you think is happening out there? I think there is reason for real optimism and that the acceleration of the vaccines is truly like nothing we've ever seen before in, in science. And now we really are down to the unsexy part of the logistics of rolling them out. And I think that's clearly our biggest challenge. And then I think the next piece that we're going to have to confront is what happens when the world is vaccinated in very unequal levels and how people feel about travel and exposure and equity along those issues. But I do think we see the end of the biggest threat to humanity and our hospital systems around COVID. And I think you've seen amazing advances in our ability to treat and address patients and what our hospitals have learned very quickly with this disease. So I think we've probably got another odd year ahead of us. And what's going to be really interesting, and I think we're seeing this in terms of a number of startups and investing spaces is now that we are all so much more keenly aware about our indoor microbiome and the communicable diseases and the risk and the threat that those pose. We have a company uh, called Phylogen, for example, that's able to test and monitor the health of indoor environments. And I think there's a real question as to whether that becomes sort of a standard moving forward within businesses and schools and our homes, how much more we want to know about the microbiome and the microbes that we're being exposed to. And we've seen in Asian countries, it's much more accepted and more frequent that people wear masks on a regular basis. And I'll be curious to see if that starts to become for a certain segment of our population an ongoing trend. I'm curious about that as well. Phylogen is a really interesting company. As you mentioned, it's building this microbiome database. So I think I had looked at this company maybe a year or two ago, and I remember it was tracing, or the idea was to help understand where a package came from. So tell me a little bit more about that company and also who its customers are and how you could see those evolving over time. So they started really with this idea of how could you do passive tracing of goods across the world? 
right? So not having to add a tag or do something to the actual shipment, but being able to, with a swab, swipe a shipment and understand which factory, which location it was made in. So when you look at that pair of Nike shoes or that shipment that's come across the ocean, being able to verify in a passive way, so it's very quick, very easy, low touch, was it actually made in the factory that it was supposed to be made in with the right working standards, with the right products, with the right materials. And there was a big draw for brands to secure their supply chains and be able to validate every step of their supply chain. They've worked with folks like Customs and and Border Patrol on things like trying to validate shipments of steel and ensuring that the steel is not invalidating any type of trade agreements and being able to ensure that it's coming from where you expected it to come from. What they saw in COVID was a sudden need to understand actually the microbiome where you're sitting, right? So it was less about supply chain and more about What is the environment that my workers are in at home, at the office, at school? And so they've got an additional test and business that's being built out now that is around passively being able to monitor that indoor microbiome and look at things like, has there been COVID in that particular space? When you're not able to rely on the expense and the invasiveness of ongoing personal diagnostics, I think you're seeing this shift and and they're being called by real estate and the Airbnbs and the hotels that want to be able to validate the health and the safety of an entire space, which just isn't something that we were all asking about 24, 36 months ago. That's fascinating. Linda, you talked about how biology is becoming more tech-enabled and how it's possible to code a vaccine. And I'm just curious, does that mean that laboratories are becoming less important and that scientists are able to do much more in simulation? And what does that mean for human testing? Are we getting to a point where we don't have to rely on human testing as much as we did in the past? I think that is where we hope to get on the human testing piece. We are not there yet. So you may have read and heard about organs on a chip and growing organoids when you can have a very small piece of liver that you're able to test toxicity on. We're doing more of that so that we should know earlier in a drug development pipeline or process if something has a dramatic toxicity, right? So we can cull things out of our pipelines earlier which should fundamentally make drug development and testing ideally faster and cheaper if you're really only investing on those that have a higher likelihood of success. That said, we are not ready to make that leap from completely doing it in silico to humans with a high level of confidence. The human body is such a complex system that we are not able to model that fully yet, but that's certainly the direction where we're going such that our shots on goal should have a higher level of predictability and ultimately a higher level of success. But I do think what you're pointing towards is this, to some degree, democratization in science and the access for more people with lower skills to be able to actually access scientific breakthroughs, scientific tools, and be able to work in 
drug discovery and drug development at a distance. So for example, we have a company that we've worked with called Stratios that has a full robotic lab that is, instead of having technicians standing there pipetting, right, you literally have robots and a, a little train track that moves assays throughout the room so that scientists who were stuck at home this year are actually able to continue experiments regardless of geography, safety in the lab, and any time constraints. And so when you've got a 24-7 system that's able to run on testing and learning and now taking all of that data and leveraging computation against it, we should be looking at a much more efficient system moving forward. So that's like an Amazon Web Services for laboratories? Exactly. They would like to be your cloud repository where you log in, you direct the experiment, you go to bed and you wake up and your data is there. And now as we're seeing the revolution that happened in technology apply against biology and new materials and really the physical world, now you've got machine learning and AI being applied against these massive data sets that's advancing those insights and developments in biology much faster. Lindy, can you talk a little bit about some of the infrastructural advancements happening that makes deep tech investing possible with even smaller checks? It's really been exciting to see the advent of the Stratios and tools that you can access without sitting in what we think of as traditional vaunted academic labs. Being able to access biology through computation really opens up that world. And then you get into the types of technologies of scale that have been built and developed in other industries like robotics and miniaturization and 3D printing, and even our ability to, from a logistics standpoint, have a huge impact on the ability to run a cell therapy where you have to actually ship a patient's cells in and out of a hospital setting very quickly. So as experts in those technologies start to turn their attention to biology, you see real advances possible in human health and life sciences, like we've been talking about and really accelerated given the interest in COVID and also in synthetic biology, where you're dealing with algae and bacteria cells, not human cells, and what's happening and possible there in synbio and green chemistry and really this interest around sustainability that we're starting to see pull through from corporates who in the past may have talked about greenwashing. And now you're really seeing their brand groups understand that there is a demand from consumers and at the business level to ensure their supply chain, the integrity of that supply chain, and now the environmental impact of that supply chain and their ingredients in the final product. I know a tiny bit about Zyvergen and Sologen, and I guess I was wondering how big these companies can be if they're going to become massive platform companies or if there's endless room to compete with them. Nobody has a stranglehold on developing molecules, for example. Well, I think what we're seeing is real expertise in the engineering of microbes and being able to do that with, say, a Zymergen and a Ginkgo on an outsourced basis that allows startups to focus on what they do best while leveraging some of these outsourced services for their expertise in a way that you've seen in other industries. And typically you weren't able to do in biology and in the sciences. So you've got, I think, a future of very big service organizations that will work to 
do that initial strain engineering and scale up and facilitate a new class of startups and be able to become quite large businesses themselves as we look at this application of biology across industry, right? Typically, as we've thought about biology, it was really around therapeutics and human health. And now we're talking about it in our building materials and in ag tech and other huge industries that are now looking at how do they scale biology in what they're building. Can you tell me a little bit about one of your portfolio companies, Opus 12, which is transforming industrial carbon dioxide emissions into chemicals? Opus 12 is a fascinating startup that emerged from two PhDs and an MBA out of Stanford a few years ago. And their breakthrough really is a a catalyst material that allows you to take, for example, waste CO2, the bad stuff, and run it through this catalyst material and produce useful CO. And so this year, for example, they produced green polycarbonate car parts in partnership with Daimler. The material is exactly the same, which makes it easy to slot into existing products, but it's actually made by reusing carbon. So I think the shift in consumer awareness around carbon-made materials is an enormous opportunity, and Opus is at the forefront of that. This is a very uninformed question, but do companies get some sort of carbon credit for doing that? Yes. And I think in the past, what we've seen is a lot of companies trying to, quote, green themselves by basically buying and trading carbon credits. And I think the shift that we're going through right now is everyone saying, okay, to some degree, that was a bit of financial engineering. And now we actually need to see these businesses making a change in their direct use of fossil fuels and their direct impact in the amount of carbon, and that just buying carbon offsets isn't going to be enough. So you're now, for the first time, really seeing commitments to change processes, supply chain, and ultimately products. How did you meet up with the founders of the company? At what stage did you become involved? And what was it that really made you have the confidence to invest in the company? We've been investing at this intersection of biology and technology and chemistry for almost 10 years now. So we have always done very early seed investments when there was still technical risk on the table. But the belief that if that science and technology worked, it was moving against a very large unmet need or market opportunity. And so we put initial funding less than half a million dollars in Opus 12, gosh, probably 20 17 at this point. And that enabled them to do their initial scale up of that catalyst material to start to get to a large enough size that they're able to produce initially this CO and ultimately a range of useful gases across industries. Did they seek you out or did you find them at a conference? How did you initially connect? We probably met Opus through DARPA, and a lot of our companies leverage those early governmental grants and those programs, especially as they're trying to take their technology out of university. And so we've invested alongside a lot of those government grant programs early on and have really built our reputation and success in the space around being a place that was championing scientists as entrepreneurs And so I think that led Opus to reach out and see if we were a fit for that early funding, knowing that we were comfortable with a reasonable amount of technology risk and very much believe in the importance of 
that founding team having enough of the the science chops built into it. You know, we're not looking to, to pick up IP separate from that founding team and their deep expertise we found in the early days is really critical. Lindy, I know a lot of your companies have received SBR grants at, at some point. Can you just tell me a little bit about whether that process has changed at all during the course of your investing career, if it's any more or less difficult to get grants, if the bar has changed at all? Yeah, I think that it's often not recognized the amount of leverage that companies in our space get from these non-dilutive government grants. And so to your point, it often starts with that early SBIR, which is less than a million dollars to advance technology. And so it's the earliest money for companies that have said, we're out of the basic research stage and we really want to drive this solution into the market. And I think the review process around those grants in general, they've widened their aperture in the sense that in the past, I think it was harder to get things approved that weren't towing the line around a particular science and a particular belief. And I think you see now more novel hypotheses and new approaches are able to get that funding. And they really want commercial reviewers. Right. So they want letters of support from corporations, from strategics that say, yes, if this technology advances, we would be interested in that. So it's really intended to help advance companies moving with velocity versus that basic research phase. You hear a lot these days about BARDA that's been such an influential government agency in supporting the vaccine work. And now they're really investing heavily in diagnostics. We've got a company, Cytovale, for example, that is on the path to having almost as many grant dollars in as they do equity dollars, even at a Series B. And so you're really seeing leverage come in this space around these non-dilutive grant opportunities. Does that change from administration to administration? I don't know if the players inside of these grant-making programs change much or if there's a learning curve that you're going to have to endure now with a new administration or is it? Yeah, a lot of the um, agencies and entities are run by career folks. And so you don't see large shifts in the overall programming or the overall dollar amounts. But what you do see that can be really exciting is funding for new initiatives. So I think that our biotech world is optimistic right now that a Biden administration, for example, will push harder around cancer, an area that he's been very active and vocal in back to the Obama administration. And so I think that you will see new initiatives and new pots of funding become available. And that varies administration to administration. But the overall core programs are are pretty consistent, which is helpful because for these companies and startups, right, it's still a long lead time process. This definitely doesn't turn on a dime the way that you would expect venture funding to. Your portfolio is so interesting to me. You've got so many different bets. You have a Cortexime, which went public in 2019, which is trying to attack the root cause of Alzheimer's. You've got Modern Meadow, which is making leather without the cow. <laughs> How do you think about dividing your time? How many different categories are there that you're looking at, or do you not think of them in sort of these discrete buckets? It's a great question. We actually internally have spent time with, do you think about them as sectors? Do you think about them as markets? And do you focus on 
the underlying technology that's driving or do you focus on who's going to be the payer and who's going to be the customer? I think the thread throughout for everything really is biology being leveraged in multiple different industries. And that means our core coming at it is understanding what's the revolution that intersection of biology and technology could drive. And then to your point, right, nobody's an expert in all of these various markets. And so our role really is to be quarterback and understand where that science is at the very beginning, but also very importantly, who are the strategics? Who are the corporates? Where's the pull through coming in on the back end? And so it means we may be in various different markets. To your point, you've got Modern Meadow that's got this bio alloy material that has a look and a feel most similar to traditional leather. And they're working with some of the biggest high-end names and fashion brands. And then you've got a Cortexime that it was very important after betting on a novel hypothesis in biology that a Pfizer and Takeda came to the table and initially funded their Series A, which was really validating for that big different idea. So I think we're always looking at who are the players that need to come in after us that can help scale and advance a new idea and also help validate it to help de-risk that new approach. And how much are you investing in these companies? And I guess, what kind of stake are you asking for? So we start at the seed stage and then we take pretty high conviction positions at Series A. We would like to have enough ownership so that when it wins and wins big, it's really substantial for funds of our size, this $60, $100 million fund size. You need each of those opportunities to have the potential of the win to return the fund. But they've got slightly different you know, exit timelines and profiles. And as we've talked about, I think you're seeing in therapeutics and in cell therapy, like Cortexime, for example, and therapeutics, you're having earlier IPOs that are really financing events, different than a traditional tech liquidity event, but those provide opportunities for portfolio management on the venture side. For years now, we've been seeing companies that are two and three years old in the biotech space going public and rather than raising later stage funding from private investors, turning to the public markets. And now what's fascinating to me is we're seeing this in the um, SPAC universe, (laughs) although we're seeing it across all kinds of companies that are frankly half-baked, which I think is the idea. Rather than, again, turn to later stage funding, why not turn to the public market and get liquidity that way? But I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about whether there are analogies here or not. Yeah, I I think there's a key distinction in that early therapeutic public receptivity and in the SPAC world right now, in the sense that on the therapeutic side, you tend to have a very clear playbook around what the potential exit is with success and who the acquirers are, right? We know that big pharma is cash rich and pipeline poor. And so they have to pick up the assets that are working. And you see them do that regularly and you've got comps and you know what that looks like. So placing a wide range of bets on early stage therapeutics, it's clear that if one wins, then you're covered. The SPAC world, I think, is going to be really interesting because most of these companies are not operating off traditional playbooks. Will they operate as public companies longer term? Are they really set up for acquisition? I think the difference here is these companies are going to have this enormous amount of funding, and yet they're not going to be able to toil in obscurity. 
And so the traditional metrics that we all want of public companies and looking at revenue and profits, we're going to have to look at these specs and their growth through a different lens. And I'm just not sure how receptive the public markets will be in the next 24 months. I think it's unclear whether we'll have a reckoning there or not. You could perhaps sell NFTs for some of your molecules. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, that is actually a really interesting idea. (laughs) That's probably being worked on somewhere. I imagine so. Lindy, this is a little bit unfair, but I'm asking you to predict the future. What areas are you the most excited about in biology and technology? It is such an explosion right now across various industries that we just continue to be surprised as to where biology shows up. So for example, I just talked to a company recently that is using biology to make cement. So one of our most base core ingredients that we use tons of every year. Now you see biology disrupting that core element of our building industry and in turn taking carbon out of the process, which is really interesting. I think on the human health side, we are on the cusp of really being able to deliver durable cures and being able to engineer cells and engineer genes such that we are not looking at long-term treatments of disease, which has really had to be our approach in the past. But durable cures and cures that are more personalized and relevant for individuals, particularly in rare disease classes. And so I have the best job in the world because every day we see new applications of science in areas that you would have least expected. Great. Well, Lindy, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. I feel like I am always so much better informed after a conversation. (laughs) So thank you again for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Really enjoy it. Thanks for digging in with me. Talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Have a wonderful week and we'll see you next Friday.